0: If you would turn with me to the conclusion of Psalm 22, last week we looked at the first approximate half of that psalm, Tonight, today we bring, begin with verse 19 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Just a reminder, we left this psalm really unresolved in a sense. The psalmist at the point we left off in verse 18 was in desperate straits, somewhat waffling, between the cry of abandonment and neglect and the small faith of remembering who God is and what he has done. Now, in this portion of the psalm, we see the majesty of God's grace, the God who answers. Now hear the words beginning at verse 19 in the prayer. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. May your hearts live forever. At the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let us close, or let us begin, close, I'm not closing yet. Let us begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear these words of praise and celebration we thank you for the opportunity to sing your praises amidst the congregation. And we pray, Lord, that your words shall fall upon believing ears and understanding hearts, that we might rejoice in the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Many of you, if you are particularly of an older persuasion, will remember the name Jim Elliot. He was, of course, a missionary to South America, particularly reaching a group at that time called the ACA. Now it's called the Huaroni, I think it is, of Ecuador. And as he began to minister in that place in Ecuador, he wrote in his personal notes this prayer. Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a mile post on a single road make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me now if you know those words and you know the situation you know that in jim elliot's lifetime god did not answer that prayer in fact, in regard to the Aka people in Ecuador in his lifetime, instead of God making him a fork in that moment on January 8, 1956, as he and four others landed a plane in a remote village area seeking to reach an unreached group of Aka Indians, instead they came and killed all five members including Jim Elliot. Was Jim Elliot abandoned or neglected along with those four other missionaries as they prayed that their lives would be used to convert people to Christ? What about David? Was he abandoned and neglected when he wrote Psalm 22? Or what about Jesus when he quoted verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross and referred in this particular psalm to so many details that fit the event of the crucifixion, did God abandon him? Well, the answer is found here. Psalm 22, we're still in the place where David is crying out for deliverance, where we think about Jesus asking for deliverance, where we think about so many believers asking for deliverance in very difficult situations And so we see the prayer for this deliverance in these first few verses, 19 through the first half of 21, but then you'll see the wonderful answer that God gives, and so verses 22 through 26 talk about praise in Israel for deliverance, and the rest of the chapter talks about praise in all the earth for deliverance. You see, God does answer prayer. But first of all, the prayer. Kind of a little summary here, verses 19 through 21a here, is kind of a summary of all of this that has gone before. Remember, David on one point is saying, Lord, it looks as if you've forsaken me and abandoned me. And then he says, remember what you did, or I remember what you did among the people Israel. But it seems as if this moment, I'm not that important in your eyes. I feel like a worm rather than a man And then reflecting upon his own relationship with God, he tells God, this is my situation. It was dire. In fact, the idea is he was left for dead. He was in dire straits. And so we get to verse 19, and it says this, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion this is in essence the shortened version of the prayer that he's been giving up to this point what is he asking for well first of all he's asking for god's immediate presence it's interesting how he begins this section he says do not be far off well this was the point wasn't it david felt like god was far away after all he said in verse one why are you so far from saving me in verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And then he gets to verse 19, he realizes because there is none to help, because God does feel so far away, he feels neglected or abandoned, his only hope is the God who he feels abandoned by. He's the only hope. There's no one to help. No one else is going to come to his aid God alone and his presence is what he needs in the here and now. But it's not just for God's presence, it's also for God's interaction, isn't it? He wants God to deliver him from some of these specific things he's been writing about. One of them is the sword. He says, deliver me or deliver my soul from the sword. In other words, this is an illustration or perhaps a literal event Where David may be surrounded by his enemies, they have swords in their hands. They're ready to take his life, and he's asking for God to come be with him and intervene, rescuing him from the sword. And then, of course, David refers once again to his enemies, the dog, the lion, and the oxen. He's already said that particularly in verses 12 and 13, clear down to verse 16. He's always re- already referred to these three types of animals. Now they're in reverse order, kind of a repetition here, to give us a reminder that things are difficult. These are ferocious enemies. He asks rescue from the dog and from the lion, of course, the dog being unclean and ferocious, the lion, of course, being someone who could tear you to pieces. These are not enemies to be taken lightly. And so in this circumstance, David says, Lord, I want you here now, and I need your help now. But perhaps the most amazing thing in all of this psalm, besides the fact that verses 1 through 18, the focus is on himself and his relationship with God, verse 19 now changes our direction to focus on God, yet verse 21 changes from the imperatives, Lord, do this or do that, to now a past tense. Somehow, perhaps as he's writing this psalm, or as he's thinking these thoughts of poetry in this situation of distress, something changes. God answered his prayer. So as he's praying for deliverance from the dog and the lion, he's about to mention the strong bulls of Bashan, he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You know, one of the interesting things about this phrase, wild oxen, the King James Version, I think, and some of the older versions actually say unicorn here. The horns of the unicorn. You see, here it is. Something ferocious. If you really met a unicorn and you had, had that Horse picture in your, in your mind with that single horn sticking out the destruction that that animal could give using that not as a beautiful wonderful cute little thing but as a weapon of war could tear into the flesh and destroy but the statement here is that God immediately at this point in the poem answered David he answered him And he says, you have rescued me. I remember for years in my first church, when I went to that church, it was very small. They had gone through some difficult time. The numbers were small. They could barely pay their bills. They were wondering about the future of their congregation. And we began to pray for a family to come to Arcadia. That was the name of the church. We began to pray for young families to come and it seems like month after month and year after year we would pray for a young family to come. And over the years or over the months and years in our church there were people who began having children and we began to pray for families to come to church. Lo and behold at some point we realized God had already answered that prayer. He had brought People who had been connected to that church their entire lives, they had now become married and they'd had their own children. These were the families God was bringing. And then through other ministries of the church, we suddenly realized they may not have been the families we expected or longed for, but they were families nonetheless, and God had answered that prayer. So our prayers changed from, Lord, will you bring this family to, Lord, thank you. You have brought these families. You see, sometimes we look for the answer and we look and we look and we look and we don't see it. You see, we must watch and listen for answers. Sometimes they're obvious. David must have obviously known God had rescued him. At that moment, perhaps, there were fellow soldiers who came and fought off the enemy with the sword. There were those who intervened by the power of God's strength to take those lions and dogs away. Whatever it was, God rescued David. But sometimes they're not so obvious, are they? Sometimes we pray and it's been on our list for a lengthy period of time and sometimes we pray and pray and we must sometimes ask the question, has God already answered this prayer? Because sometimes in our selfishness, in our blindness, we don't see God's work and thus we don't worship him for it. But this is the amazing thing in this passage. We've seen David's description of his Feelings of abandonment and neglect. And we've seen the dire situation he finds himself in. And by the end of verse 21, we see God has rescued him. Now the rest of the psalm is a psalm of praise. He says, verse 22, what is it that changed from verse 19 to verse 22? It's that God had delivered him. He says, I'll tell your name to my brother's. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord praise him. All you offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. What is he doing? He's first testifying in the congregation. I will tell of your name. This is what we do when God answers prayer. We cannot help but tell those who worship God together in the assembly. We can't Help, but tell them what God has done to rescue us. We also recognize the importance of corporate worship. For some reason, there is a great movement in the American Christian culture that people will profess to believe in Christ, but ignore corporate worship. In fact, I guarantee you there are large numbers of people in Myrtle Beach this morning who claim to be Christians, but are sitting home in their beds. And refusing to worship in a church, perhaps claiming bad experiences or perhaps claiming that the church does not meet their needs or perhaps saying that the church is not the kind of institution they want to be a part of. But this is the congregation that we tell others of the name of the Lord. This is so important that the first thing David does when he's rescued is he says, I will tell your name where? To the church of God. To the congregation, it is imperative that we come and worship together and proclaim the name of the Lord. After all, he invites others to praise with him, doesn't he? He's testifying to first his brothers. Notice what he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In other words, he's not just saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm going to tell my biological brother in the house about what God has done. No, he's talking about the people of Israel, fellow believers. He's telling about those who are called to be the people of God. He says, they're the first ones we want to share the good news with. They're our family. Testifying, To the brothers. And then it says, testifying with those fearing the Lord. He calls on those fearing the Lord. Praise Him. Praise Him. How can we do that if those who fear the Lord don't come to the congregation? After all, we're to come together, those who fear the Lord, and praise His name. Why? Because in reverent awe, we see His power and His goodness and His grace. And then, of course, it says, All you offspring, or seed of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel. These seed, a recognition that those who are truly of Israel, that is those who have the faith of Abraham. Even in David's day, we are reminded that those who are of Abraham are those circumcised of heart, those who believe upon Jesus Christ. And the promise in those days and now looking back on Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the Messiah. Those who fear the Lord, those who are the seed of Jacob or the seed of Israel. We testify amongst them and call them to do what? To glorify him and to stand in awe of him. Is this what you do when you come to church? I hope you don't just come to church to sing songs together, or to fellowship and socialize together. I hope that when you come to worship, you come to stand in awe of a holy God who loves his people and has kept his covenant promises. This is the God that David writes about. This is the God revealed in the word of God, the God who answers prayers of deliverance. And we testify of the wonders of praise of what God has done. We testify in the congregation. We also are recounting the answer of the Lord. It says in verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. This is news. What did David just say? I feel as if God abandoned me. I feel as if God neglected me, that man despises and scorns me. But now he says I'm neither abandoned nor neglected Because God has not despised or abhorred my affliction. It seems to be as if David is using himself in the third person here. The affliction of the afflicted. He described himself as afflicted throughout this psalm. He says, God did rescue me. He has not abandoned me. He has not forsaken me or neglected me. Instead, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Again, this is news, isn't it? The first 18, really the first 21 verses seem to indicate that this man writing this psalm feels as if there's no hope and yet he's waffling between his faith wondering about this God who has saved others and has a history with him as his God, sovereign over all things, and yet the situation begs the question, where are you, God? And yet we come to this verse and it says this, I am neither unheard nor unanswered. And yes, those are two different things, aren't they? God can hear us, but not answer us immediately. In fact, we can say in a lot of ways a lot of people hear our needs, don't they? But not as many answer them. But here he says, he has not in his face, he has heard when I cried to him. The indication here is God has not only heard me, he has rescued me. That's what he's testifying about. Recounting God's answer. How many of you at times have told others of dire situations you've been in and left them hanging because you didn't tell them how God answered you? We need to hear sometimes. Not just the prayer requests, but the prayer praises. What has God done to answer your prayers? Here says David. One of the great things we do in the congregation is we testify to how God has not abandoned, not neglected, not refused to hear, not refused to answer, but he has come to our deliverance and our rescue. And then we do something rather amazing. Verse 25 says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Now how does this fit in? He's just talking about the, the importance of praising and worshiping and giving thanks and all those things. And he talks about eating. What is all that about? We see we not only testify in the congregation and recount the answers that God gives, but we are feasting on the sacrifices of praise. Now, first of all, in David's life, this had a significant meaning in connection with the worship in the tabernacle and later the temple. You see, there is one particular offering, just one where the members of Israel could eat in the sanctuary in relation to an offering. That was called the peace offering of thanksgiving. And what the person would do, that person was offering that peace offering. It was a voluntary offering. He would offer that offering in response to an answer or deliverance or blessing that God had given him. So he would invite the others in Israel, particularly among his acquaintances, and they would go to the priest and he would offer this sacrifice, perhaps of grain or other things, and they would together gather in the sanctuary, and apparently the practice was that the person offering that would stand up and tell them how God had blessed him. And then they would sit down together in the presence of the Lord and feast This is what David's talking about. Even those, if he went to this place of worship, this tabernacle, to offer this offering, he would invite those who had been affected and afflicted because of the situation that he had found himself in. And when he told them of God's answer to prayer, they would sit down and feast together, thanking God for what they had done. So it says, now the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. You see, they're feasting in this sense on the peace offering of thanksgiving as described in Leviticus 7. On the other hand, it's also a reminder of what these participants experience. He had just said in his time of difficulty in verse 14... My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. In other words, he had fallen. Not literally, physically fallen. But his demeanor was weak. And his his life was ebbing away. Not just physically. As it says, he can count his bones. But it's also emotionally, spiritually He felt as if his lifeblood was ebbing away. And of course, he feared for his life. But now, after the answer to prayer, look at what he says. Your hearts will live forever. In other words, the reminder here is this is a God who gives blessings for all eternity. It's not just that he rescues us from a a moment of physical destruction, but he rescues us forever forever and gives us blessings that last forever. You see, the other aspect of this is when we apply these words to Jesus Christ and his crucifixion on the cross, which so many of these events in this psalm refer to, remember, gambling for the garments, the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the idea of being scorned and mocked, all those different things. You see, we will feast too. For Jesus said his body was given to us and his blood. This is also a reference, a picture, a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. How together when we sit down at the table and we remember God's deliverance, then what he does in that event is strengthen us for the life to come because we remember how he has delivered us from sin and we have these eternal blessings Yes, prophesied right here in Psalm 22. Some of you know my father was a pastor. I remember one particular story of a place where I lived. we lived when I was in high school. My father began ministering to the husband of a member of our church. The husband was not a believer, but he had somehow been given a death sentence of cancer. I don't remember what type of cancer he had, but I know he was physically declining and my dad began to visit him in the home. And he began to minister to him in his time of need. He became fairly soon weak enough that he did not leave his bedroom very often. And my dad began to tell him about the gospel and read scripture to him and prayed with him. And this man came to believe in Jesus Christ on his deathbed. But you know, when he was delivered from his sin, he wasn't delivered from his cancer. But when he was delivered from his sin, what did he want to do? He wanted to find some way that he could praise God amidst the people. And so he asked my dad, he said, I have believed in Jesus Christ, I believe I'm supposed to be baptized now. Would you baptize me? And so my father, he took elders from the church and a few others that might fit in the bedroom... And the man said, that's not enough. I want you to invite my unbelieving children to come and witness this event. And so he did. My father was able with elders from the church to come and invite whoever could fit in that room with all of those who would be in his family, believers or unbelievers, and right there on his deathbed, he was baptized. You see, true Israel the children of Abraham by faith, what do they want to do? They want to dine together. They want to experience the sacraments together. They want to be eternal participants in the God of the answer. Not just the God of the question, will you help me, will you rescue me, but the God of the answer, the Amen and the Yes in Jesus Christ. We want to participate together because God delivers us from our sins. And what happens when we proclaim that in the people of Israel or the people of Jesus Christ? It spreads, doesn't it? It spreads to all the earth. In fact, if you thought the Old Testament was just about Israel, then 27 through 31 is going to open your eyes. It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This is not an Israel-only passage. This is a passage which, first of all, reminds us of the gospel effects on the families of the nations. Look at the effects. What will they do first? They will remember. You see, the nations of the earth forget that there's a creator. The nations of the earth forget that God has called a people unto himself. They have forgotten that God is sovereign over all things. And many of them perhaps have never been told that there was a redeemer who was to come and rescue them from the effects of death or the effects of sin and death. But now they will remember or they will hear perhaps for the first time. And then what will happen? The next one is the word of repentance. It's the word turn. Or the term return. They will turn to the Lord. In other words, they will hear of their sin and God's provision of rescue through Jesus Christ. And what will happen? They will turn from their sins to the Lord for deliverance. And then what will happen? They will bow down. They will worship. To bow down in this context is not just to worship and pay homage, but it's a reminder that they are recognizing the sovereignty of God. They're recognizing that he has conquered them. And so they are going to submit to him and obey Him, and pray to Him. This, in essence, is reminding us that people from every nation of the earth, from every family and tribe, will come to the feet of the cross and bow themselves to the God of heaven and earth, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful blessing. In fact, as you read this, you cannot help but think these are the words that God told to Abraham. When he was called Abram in Genesis 12, he said, "...in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Here's the psalmist saying, here it is. When God rescues his people, they will be used as God's instruments of evangelism to tell what God has done. And by this evangelism, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in the gospel and the word, people will be converted from all over the nations of the earth This is why we have this task. Make disciples. It's not a new thing. It's God's thing that he declared to the Israelites back in Abraham's day. It's what he declared in David's day. It's what he declares in the days of Christ. Why? Because it's also a declaration of the Lord's sovereignty. Kingship belongs to the Lord. who wrote this psalm David David's the king of Israel David is the most important walking breathing human being on the face of the earth in that moment of that day because he is the anointed one who is leading God's chosen people Israel and yet he says and writes the kingship is not mine it's God's alone The declaration of God's sovereignty reminds us that he will rule and does rule over all the nations. But of course, what does gospel mean? It means good news. Here's the good news. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. You see, this is the gospel inclusion of all the elect from all different backgrounds and walks of life, every nation, every family of the earth, but also in every state and condition. From, as it says in the Hebrew, the fat, that is the prosperous, those who have a lot, those who who can dine on whatever they please, to the dying. That's what it means when it says those who go down to the dust. Those are those who are dying. Perhaps, as some say, this second phrase, the one who could not keep himself alive, this is again is the dying, the person who is weak and sick and unable to prevent death. He says, even those people shall bow down to the Lord in the dust. You see, this was the new cancer congregant of my father's church he was the one who was going down to the dust who could not keep himself alive there was no medicine that could keep him alive anymore there was no more treatment there were no more options for him his family knew he had but a little time and of course it was true many years ago now he died but he, before his death, on his bed, perhaps too weak to get out of his bed and kneel on his knees before the holy God, he became that, that person going down to the dust who bowed in worship to the living God. And you see, this is how it works. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know what circumstances. Even those in Caesar's household, as Paul writes in one letter, even those in the royal places of the world and even those in the muck and mire of the difficulty scraping out an existence of life, there will be some among those individuals who will be saved and rescued from their sin. Posterity shall serve him, it says. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Here's this testimony again, isn't it? Not only do we testify among fellow believers... Not only do we testify among those who fear the Lord and those because God's Spirit has worked in them will seek the Lord, perhaps for the first time, turning from their sins, but also it says it shall be told to the coming generation, even those unborn, as it says here. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. You see, the gospel inclusion becomes a gospel proclamation. Go ye therefore to all the world and preach the gospel. What is the gospel? First of all, it's the righteousness of God. That's the word that's used here in Psalms. If you don't understand the concept of righteousness in the Bible, I beg you, this is a very important concept. You need to understand it. You need to know it. In fact, the Holy Spirit will convict you regarding righteousness. Righteousness is so very important because without righteousness you cannot go to heaven. In fact if we don't have righteousness God will look at us and he will tell us get away from me you wicked person you wicked servant in the place where there is gnashing of teeth. You see righteousness is right acts or things that are done to please God and you and I don't have these things. We don't. Isaiah says our righteousness is like filthy rags. But if we are delivered from our sin, we're recognizing that we have an alien righteousness. That means something that did not belong to us to begin with. It was something given to us by faith. And of course, that righteousness, to proclaim God's righteousness, is to proclaim Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness, as the author says, Paul does to the Corinthians. Jesus is our righteousness. So here in the Psalms, it's it's prophesying the day when all of God's people will proclaim Jesus Christ because his righteousness is our salvation. And you not only proclaim the righteousness, but you also proclaim the gospel accomplishment. For after all, what did Jesus say with his last breath on the cross? It is finished. Here's what the psalmist says. So closely tied to the crucifixion, thinking of all the events that take place in Psalm 22 that are so descriptive to the things that happened to Jesus on the cross. And the psalmist concludes this psalm with, He has done it. This is the gospel. You see, from the time of Abraham and even before, the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, God the Father had proclaimed that there would be a redeemer who would come to crush the head of the serpent. There would be someone descended from the woman, Eve, who would in essence crush that serpent's head or the offspring even. And then through Abraham there was this promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then in the time of David, David was promised that from you a seed shall come who will reign on the throne forever. And when David writes these words of the psalmist, he prophesies the time when his descendant from the line of David and the anointed king, who will be king because he is both God and man. He will accomplish everyone who believes in him. He will accomplish their deliverance on the cross. This is the gospel according to David. So now, how does this fit into the time of the cross when Jesus was quoted in Psalm 22 and so many details were prophesied which fit the text? You see, Jesus, we know, when we look at the first half of the psalm, Jesus was abandoned more than anybody, wasn't he? When our sins were placed upon him, he was separated from the Father for the first time from all eternity. And he was separated to a degree that none of us will understand because he had the sins of every believer on his back. And even though he cried those words to God... Please take this cup of suffering from me. And perhaps he was even as he meditated upon Psalm 22, thinking of that prayer, do not be far off. Be my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Despite that prayer, he died. He died. Despite the petition mirroring the garden prayer and the words uttered on the cross. And yet when you hear those words, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, or as I like to say, the horn of the unicorn. It was a unicorn, wasn't it? That Jesus was rescued by God's raising him from the dead in the resurrection. You see, when Jesus is uttering these prayers, We understand that he says, not my will, but yours be done. But we also understand that God delivered him and called him, raised him, so that death and sin was defeated by Jesus' perfect obedience on the cross, and death itself is facing destruction because Jesus was raised from the dead. The effects have come now, how? On all generations yet to come. This is the gospel. Why do we come to worship every Sunday? Because it is a joy. It is a privilege to tell others what God has done. Why do we come and we worship together in the congregation? Because together we want to build one another up and encourage each other as we go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to all the families of the earth so that others might have the glorious blessings and join us, the congregation of praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the answer to prayer. Lord, sometimes we struggle with the answers. We may not see them in this life like Jim Elliott. We might not see them the way we expect, like those who experienced the events around the life of Jesus. But Father, we know that your blessings are true based on your history and your word and your character. And Lord, you have rescued your people from sin and death and destruction by Jesus' work on the cross. Thank you that you raised him from the dead and that in him we have life. Lord, give us empowerment. Give us the ability by your strength to proclaim the gospel to all the families of the earth from generation to generation until you shall close this age. We pray in Jesus' name.